Amen, amen. Thank you, Johnny. Thank you, guys. Good morning, Haynes Creek. Good to be with you today. I hope you are doing well. It is a joy to be worshiping with you this morning. If it is your first time, I just want to say a special welcome to you. We are so excited that you're here worshiping with us, and we would love a chance to reach out and just say thank you for your visit. So if you can do me a huge favor, stop by our welcome table right out there as you go back out in the hallway. We have a free gift we'd love to put in your hands today. There's also a welcome card right there on the table. If you wouldn't mind just taking a minute filling that out, those come back to me, and it gives me a chance to reach out and say thank you for your visits. If you could do me that favor, I would really appreciate that. Before we get started, just got a couple of announcements to share with you. One of those uh, is Operation Christmas Child. We are partnering with them again this Christmas season. Uh, we have boxes in the back. If you would like to participate, please grab one of those. These boxes get shipped around the world to kids in need. It gives us a chance to provide them with some fun toys or uh, necessities for Christmas that they otherwise wouldn't have. But more importantly, uh, they get to hear the good news of Jesus Christ uh, through these boxes, through this ministry. So it's really awesome. Awesome. If you would love to partner with that, please grab one of those boxes. Uh, you can go to their website for details on what to put in it and how to package it and all that good stuff. And we are going to collect them through Sunday, November 19th. So bring your filled box back here by that Sunday, the 19th, and we will get those to the shipping center and sent off all across the globe. So if you want to partner with that, please grab one of those boxes uh, before you head out today. And also uh, be sure to check out the weekly email that we send out every single week. It's always got important details, updates, information events, announcements that you need to know about so I don't have to spend 20 minutes letting you know everything that's going on. Check your email. If you don't get our weekly emails, let me know. I will add you to that list. Uh, so just let me know before you head out today and I'll make sure you get connected through that. And church, we're going to continue in our series going verse by verse through Philippians today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, we took a break last week, so he's not here today, but shout out to Willie Smith for preaching for me. Thank you, sir, for doing that. Hope you hear that. Uh, thank you so much for doing that. He gave me the chance to, uh, to be with my family last weekend. I don't know if I told you guys or not, but my daughter, Livy, uh, was doing cheerleading this year for the first time. So she was doing cheerleading for our local football association. So they were cheering for games, but at the same time, they were practicing and have been practicing since August for this cheer competition. And they just happened to schedule it on a Sunday morning. So I wanted to be there to support her and be there for her. Uh, so that's why I was out last week. So thank you for allowing me that opportunity. Thank you, Willie, for preaching for me to do that. And uh, they did great. They, were, they, they didn't play, so that was a little bummer, and they were a little disappointed. But they did awesome. She did great. Super proud of her. So that was... Uh, that was uh, an event. Never been to something like that before, so that was a new thing for, for me. But uh, it was fun. It was a good time. So we're going to, uh, I know we took a break last week. We're going to jump right back into Philippians chapter 2 where we left off a couple weeks ago. When we, when we started this a couple weeks ago, I let you know that we were stepping into a new section of Philippians. And in Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11, we see this beautiful, uh, poetic uh, hymn almost of, of Jesus. It, it's a highly exalting passage passage of Jesus Christ, one of the most important passages that we have, not just in Philippians, but in the entire New Testament. And it's so valuable for what it teaches us about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. So I told you guys that Stepping into this new section, we are going to slow down even more than we already have, and we're going to take week by week, we're just going to dig into one single verse to really dig in and examine what does this teach us about Jesus, because that's, that's what this is all about, right, church? Like, we are here because of Jesus. We're saved because of Jesus. We gather for worship, and worship who? We worship Jesus. This is all about Jesus, and this passage lifts Jesus Hi. So we want to just pause and just simmer 
and the beauty of what this passage teaches us and, and how it, it guides us to a deeper worship of Jesus. So we are slowing down, we're pausing just a little bit and just hanging out and digging deep in these. And I warned you, it's going to be a little bit more theological for these few weeks than it typically is. I love that. I'll try really hard not to nerd out too much on you guys, but uh, it is really valuable for us. Like we said a couple weeks ago, like we have to get these things right about Jesus. These things matter. We talk a lot about what's open-handed that, that, that Christians across the banner of Jesus can disagree with and still have fellowship with one another, but there are lines, right? We, we do have to draw theological, doctrinal lines that say, you know what, if you don't believe these, then then I'm not sure that you are a believer. So we talked about the deity of Jesus last week. We're going to talk about another aspect of Jesus today that, that, are, that are closed-handed issues. So this, this is important. This matters. So hang with me. Let's dig in together over these next few weeks. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to, we're going to read the whole passage, 5 through 11, and dig into specifically verse 7. So let me pray for us, and we'll get started. Jesus, we thank you for this day, Lord. I thank you for this this gift that is the church, Lord, that we get to come together with you, with your people, with brothers and sisters in Christ and unite together in fellowship and in worship of you, Lord. So we, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this gift that you've given us in the church, Lord. Forgive us when we take it for granted and we, we take it lightly, Lord. So I pray for us today. I pray, Lord, that you would be here with us. We know that you are, Lord. Would you, would you allow us to see you in new and fresh ways today, Lord? Would you convict our hearts where we need conviction? Would you lead us back to you where we need that, Lord? Would you deepen our love and our faith and our knowledge of you today, Lord? So open our eyes, open our ears and our hearts to what you would have for us, Lord. Preach through me today, Lord. Let this all be about you, Lord. We don't want to hear my words. We don't want to hear Travis's ideas. We, we want to hear from you, Jesus. So Lord, would you teach us? Would you guide us? Would you bless our time today? In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so Philippians chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, great. If not, as always, you can follow along on the screen. If you don't own a Bible, we have Bibles on the table. Please, please, please grab one of those before you head home. But Philippians chapter 2, and each week we're going to read this whole passage because we want to understand it and read it in its context. We want to make sure we're, we're following along where we are so we don't just kind of get these disjointed, broken up weeks. So we're going to read it all, but we're going to then zoom in specifically today on verse 7. So let me read this for us, and we'll, we'll jump in. Verse 5, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross." For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, so two weeks ago we looked at verse 6, right, where it says that, that Jesus was existing in the form of God. And what that reminds us of and teaches us about Jesus is that he is fully God, right? He has the same exact nature as God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, right? Our, our God exists in Trinitarian form, which means we have one God that has three distinct persons, and each person within the Godhead is fully 100% 
God, right? They don't have different natures. They all have the same divine nature. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. One God, three persons. Not three different gods. One God, three persons. I know it's crazy, but that's, that's who our God is. That's what Scripture clearly teaches us. And, and so we said Jesus has the same nature as God. He is God. And that is what separates us from a whole bunch of other religions out there that claim to worship and follow Jesus, right? All the different cults out there, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, that say we worship the same Jesus. No, we don't. Because what they would say is that Jesus is a God. He's like God. He's an exalted being, superior, worthy of worship, savior of the world, right? That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that he is God. Jesus claimed to be God. The New Testament authors all understood Jesus to be God. They worshiped him as God. So that's what verse 6 taught us. And now we're going to zoom in to verse 7. Let me read this again for us. It says, instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And so like I said a couple weeks ago, we're going to keep three questions in front of us as we walk through this passage. We're going to ask ourselves as we look through this, as we zoom into these verses, we're going to ask, what does it teach us about who Jesus is, the person of Jesus? What does it teach us about what Jesus has done or is doing or will do, right? What does it teach us about the work of Jesus? And then what does all of that mean for me today, living for Jesus in 2023? All right, so those are the three questions we're going to keep in front of us. So let's, let's ask those as we look at verse 7. And the first thing we see here, if you're taking notes, write this down. The first thing we see, first question, what does this tell us about who Jesus is? It tells us this, that Jesus is fully man. He is fully man. So again, we said last week that Jesus is fully God. And now we're saying that he is fully man. That is what the Bible teaches. That is what this passage is teaching us, that Jesus exists as fully God and fully man. We're going to break that down, and and hopefully we can all try to understand that together. But but that's what verse 7 is telling us. Verse 6 told us he's fully God, 100% God, and now verse 7 is telling us that he is fully man. He tells us that, that uh, Jesus assumes the form of a servant, a, a human servant. And that, that word form is the same word in verse 6, where we said form means that all the things that make God God exist in Jesus. Well, all the things that make us human also exist in Jesus. He has the form of man. He takes on the likeness of humanity. So he is fully God, fully man. Now, this, so this verse is, is talking about what we typically call the incarnation. That, that when Jesus comes to earth, he comes in, in the incarnation. Right? That's what theologians refer to it. God leaves heaven. Jesus leaves heaven and comes to earth to live as a man. This is how, I love how John 1.14 puts it. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, now, at the beginning of John, we read this verse a couple weeks ago. The first verse of John chapter 1 tells us that the Word is Jesus. And the Word has always existed. The Word is God, right? He was with God. He is God. He created everything through the Word. The Word is God. And now he's saying that the Word becomes flesh. The Word becomes man and dwells among us. Dwells among us. That's what this is teaching us. That's what Philippians 2 verse 7 is telling us about Jesus, that the, the, the forever existing God, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, now has come to earth to live as a man, puts on flesh, puts on humanity. 
All right, so let's, let's dig in theologically here. This we'll, we'll take a little step towards the, the deeper end of the pool. So hang with me. So theologically, what this tells us is that Jesus is one person with two natures. One person, two natures. Fully God nature, fully man nature, existing in the one person. So this is important for us. This is important. So, so Jesus does not... It does not exist as, as two different persons, right? There's not, as Jesus is living here on earth, there's not the, the human person of Jesus while the, the God person of Jesus is still in heaven. That, that's not what this tells us. This also doesn't tell us that, that Jesus is one person with one nature that kind of shifts and changes depending on where he's at. When he's in heaven, he's God. When he's on earth, he's a man. And, and he's got one person, one nature that just kind of morphs and shifts and, and changes and manifests itself differently depending on where Jesus is located at that moment. That's not what this is telling us either. It also doesn't tell us that when he became man, that he exchanged his divine nature for a human nature, right? It's not like he had the, the God jacket on in heaven, and then he takes the God jacket off, leaves that up in heaven, divine nature stays up there, and now he puts on the human jacket, and now he comes to earth as a human and lives as a human separate from his divine nature. That's, that's not what it's teaching either. Okay, this is important. This matters. We'll talk about why it matters towards the end here, but this is significant. Jesus exists as one person two natures, fully God, fully man. So when Jesus comes to earth, he doesn't subtract from his divine nature in any way. He adds to it. He adds a human nature to it. So Jesus now forever exists as the God-man, as fully God, fully man. One person, two natures, fully God, fully man, together. How does that work? How does that work? I don't know. All right, that, that's beyond my depth. We'll understand that on the other side of eternity, probably. But that's what the Bible teaches us. The Bible makes it clear. Just like we talked about last week, the Bible makes it clear. There's no other option other than the Bible teaches that Jesus is God. And now we have this other truth, too, that the Bible teaches, no question about it, that Jesus was fully man. He lived as a man, as a person, just like we do, going through many of the same things that we do. So where do we see this in Scripture? Well, the first evidence that we see of this is that Jesus was born just like us. Look, we got some beautiful little babies in here. Jesus, at one point, was a beautiful little baby, too. We celebrate this every year at Christmas, right? Jesus was born, and that's what, that's what verse 7 is, is telling us here, that, that taking on the likeness of humanity, that, that taking on, that, that's one word in the Greek, and that could easily be translated born. He was born in the likeness of humanity. He was born as a man. And again, we celebrate this every Christmas. So let's just read some of these, these descriptions of Jesus' birth. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 12 says, In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over the flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. So when God came to earth, when the word put on flesh to dwell among us, he came as a baby, born to a woman, born as a little baby, 
That's how Jesus came. Just like the rest of us were born, Jesus was too. And then those shepherds came to find the Savior. They didn't find a grown man, adult, going, hey guys, I'm here, what's up? No, they found a little baby. A little baby wrapped in cloths with his mom, Mary. So Jesus was born just like we were, but this was no ordinary birth. This is what Matthew 1 tells us about Jesus' birth. Starting in verse 18, it says, The birth of Jesus Christ came about in this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. Okay, so Mary and Joseph, engaged but not yet together in the married sense of the word there, okay? So they, they had not come together as husband and wife yet. And here, before the wedding, Mary's like, hey, guess what? I'm pregnant. Now, what else is Joseph supposed to do but assume like, okay, who you been messing around with, right? What you been doing? So he's like, okay, no, I'm out. I'm out. You go, whatever guy did that to you, like, you go be with him. I'm done. That makes sense. I think we would all in that situation be asking some hard questions there. I mean, like, what is going on? But here's what happens, verse 20. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus' birth and conception was miraculous. God placed this baby, placed himself in the womb of the Virgin Mary. This was something significant because it was prophesied hundreds of years before in Isaiah chapter 7 that the Messiah would be born to a virgin. That's exactly what happened. So Jesus comes into the world as a little baby, the Savior in a baby. But then, then Jesus doesn't stay a baby, right? He doesn't just fast forward and, and just the next day he's like a grown adult. Like, no, he, he grew up just like we did, right? Math, or Luke 2, 52 says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in the favor with God and with people. So not only was he born, he grew up just like any other person, right? Eventually that baby became a toddler and then a little child and then an adolescent and eventually into a man. He grew in wisdom and knowledge and physical. Like he grew in all the ways that, that we grow as well. And then as a person, as a man, as a, as a human, Jesus goes through all the different things that we face as human. He got hungry. Matthew 4, 2 says, after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. God got hungry. John 4, 6, Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. He was worn out. Now, do we think that, that God gets hungry or tired? Is God the Father chilling up in heaven right now? Am I like, I just need a sandwich. I'm just getting a little hungry, getting a little cranky. I just need a sandwich to get me through the rest of the day. No! He's God. He's like, oh, man, been upholding the universe this whole day. I really need a nap. Holy Spirit, take over for me. I'm going to take a 20-minute, okay? I'll be right back. He doesn't get tired. No, but Jesus, because he's a man, he's living as a man just like we are as people, he gets hungry and tired. If Jesus was just here as God that just, and he just kind of looked like a man, but he wasn't really a man, he wasn't really a person, he was still God, like just only God and, and wasn't anything else but that and just kind of looked like a person, he wouldn't be getting hungry and tired. He wouldn't be going through the same things that we go through on a regular basis. Okay, so this is proof that he was 
Amen. He had emotions. When his, his best friend Lazarus passes away, Jesus weeps. John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus wept. When his friend Lazarus dies, he cries at the loss of his friend. Matthew 9, 36, when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus went through the full range of human emotions that we go through as well. Emotions are not from the devil, y'all. That did, emotions did not come as a result of the fall. God created us as beings, as humans with emotions. So when Jesus comes and lives as a man, he had emotions too. He just didn't sinfully engage in those emotions like we do all the time, but he still had them, still had them. He had a human will where he was able to make decisions on his own, right? He wasn't just this, this divine robot that just did whatever God said, right? Like he had decisions that he made and, and willfully chose to obey God the Father in his will. We see this in Matthew 26 where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is hours before he is about to go to the cross and die for our sins, to take on the wrath of God for our sins. And he's, he's praying. And, and we see this throughout that narrative that Jesus is distressed and he's troubled in his spirit. And he's feeling the weight about, uh, of what is about to happen. And he says this in, in Matthew 26, 39, going a little farther, he fell face down and prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. He's talking about the cross here. Let the cross pass from me. If there's any other way, God, can we do it another way? Does it have to be this? But then he says, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is making a conscious decision right now to obey the Father's will and not what he would prefer. As a man, Jesus suffered. He experienced betrayal from his close friends. He faced false accusations, gossip. He was beaten. He bled on the cross, and he died as a man on the cross. Just like what we saw two weeks ago, Scripture doesn't give us any other choice but to say that it teaches that Jesus is fully God. Same here. Scripture does not give us any other option but to say that Jesus is fully God and fully man. One person, two natures. That's what the Bible teaches us about who Jesus is. Okay, so now we got that. Our next question, what does this verse teach us about what Jesus has done? Number two, if you're taking notes, write this down. What this verse teaches us is that Jesus emptied himself. He emptied himself. Let's read it again, verse 7. Instead, he emptied himself. And again, that, that instead references back what we saw in, in verse 6, that he existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. And we talked about two weeks ago that that means that it's something to, to be used for his own personal gain and advantage. He didn't see his deity, his equality with God as something for his own personal gain and benefit. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. So Jesus empties himself. Now, now what, is that, what does that mean? What is that, what is that teaching us here? That Greek word there for, for emptied is the Greek word kanao. Kanao, and it means primarily that. Its main definition is just that. It, it's to, to have something be emptied, to empty something. You know, as if you were to take a glass of water and you dump it out, now that water, that, that cup is empty, right? You've emptied it of the water. So that's typically when we hear that something is being emptied, we think that it's being emptied of something, right? There's an object to that. Just like in a couple of days, my kids are going to go trick-or-treating for Halloween. They're going to get a bunch of candy. They're going to bring it home, and then they're going to go to bed, and I'm going to still be up. And when they wake up and they're like, Dad, what happened to my candy? I'm going to tell them I emptied it. 
into my belly. Not all of it. I'm just going to take the stuff that I want, which is mainly the Reese's. They know when they go to bed, they're going to wake up with no more Reese's candy because I'm going to eat it all. Okay? Like, that's just what's going to happen. So when we think of something being emptied, we think, okay, there's an object to it. It's being emptied of something. So is, that's what, is that what this is teaching? Is Jesus emptying himself of something? It, what, what's going on here? Now, now that has been a typical understanding of this verse, especially in, in the last couple of centuries in, in the theological world. Maybe you even heard this taught. I know growing up, it was kind of taught this way to me as well, that, that when Jesus comes as a man, he, he relinquishes some of his deity, right? He, he kind of leaves behind, even if it's voluntarily, he voluntarily gives up some of his deity, right? He's not, he's not fully all-powerful. He's not fully all-knowing when he's here as a man. He is some of those things, but, but in some ways, he's not fully God while he's living as a man. That, that's what theologians have called the kenosis theory. It comes from that Greek word kenao. Again, I know this is in the weeds. If you want to learn more about that, do more research, or come find me, and I'll bug you for like two hours talking about this. But, but that's what some have taught. Even, even me growing up in church, that's kind of what it was taught for me growing up. Is that what this is saying? Did Jesus somehow leave behind some of his deity up there in heaven when he comes to earth? Is he, is he emptying himself of something? No, I don't think that's what this is saying. I don't think that's what this is teaching. Because again, we have to reconcile the rest of Scripture with what we see here. And it's what we've been talking about. Jesus, when he comes as a man, does not leave behind some of his godness up in heaven. No, he comes down as fully God and adds to his divinity fully man. So he's not He's not relinquishing some of his deity. He's not leaving that behind. Again, he's not trading in his divine nature for a human nature. He's adding his human nature to his divine nature. So if that's what's going on here, what, what does this verse mean? Well, again, we have to remember that this is poetic language. It's metaphorical language. It's, it's written almost like a hymn. In fact, most people believe that this is like some sort of Christian hymn that was sung at this time that Paul might not even be the original author of these words. We don't know that for sure, but we do know that this is poetic, metaphorical language. So when he says emptied, what's he talking about? Well, there's a secondary understanding of that word that talks more of being emptied of status or position. And I think that's more of what this is getting at. The NIV translates this word as Jesus made himself nothing. And I think that's getting to the heart of the understanding of what's going on here. When Jesus leaves behind the glory and the riches and perfection of heaven, he is lowering himself, right? And, and Paul explains what he means by emptied with the rest of, this worth. He, rest of this verse. He says he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, by taking on the likeness of humanity, by coming as a man. That, that phrase, he emptied himself, is talking about exactly what we've been talking about. It's talking about the incarnation. And then when Jesus comes, he comes as a servant. He comes as just a regular person. That's certainly lower than the status of God, right? He is lowering himself. He is humbling himself. He is making himself, in a sense, nothing compared to what it was before at least from our perspective, right? It looks like he's coming as nothing. It looks like he's really like, man, you've gone down several notches. You were up here, God, perfect in heaven, and now, now you're a servant. That's a big change. That's what this is talking about. That's what Paul is getting at here. Jesus empties himself 
through the incarnation. He lowers himself. He, he, he takes himself down some notches in status and, and view uh, of us looking at God, right? We wouldn't think that God would come as a servant or as just a regular guy, but that's exactly what Jesus does. He humbles himself. He makes himself nothing. And in doing that, Jesus teaches us two things about the incarnation here. The first one that it tells us is that he came for us. Jesus comes for us. This is significant. Jesus leaves heaven. Why does he do that? He does it for us, for you, for me. He comes here to be with us and to save us. Matthew 1, 23 puts it this way. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. When Jesus comes, it is God being with us. Zechariah 9.9, prophesying about the birth of Jesus, says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The king comes to us. Paul writes this in 1 Timothy 1. 115, he says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. Jesus came for us. He comes for us. He leaves heaven so that he can come and save us. And church, this is a radical truth. This is a phenomenal truth because, look, when we look at every other religion in the world, every other teaching of, of anything that claims to offer salvation, every other religion, worldview, understanding, man, if there is a higher plane to reach, if there is a salvation to, to be grasped, if there is enlightenment to be had, or, or whatever it is that they're teaching, the path to get there, it's on you. You have to find your way to God. You have to find your way to salvation. You have to be good enough to be accepted. You have to, to do and follow all the rules to reach that higher plane. You have to find nirvana or enlightenment or whatever word you want to put to it. Salvation is on you. That's, when we look at the world, that, that is every other religion out there is teaching. In order to get to God, man, it is on you. You have to find your way to God. You have to find your way to salvation. Not so with Jesus. Not with Jesus. Jesus doesn't leave salvation in our hands. He comes to us. He paves the road to salvation. He comes and gets us and brings us there because here's the truth, y'all. We can't get there on our own. Salvation is, is unreachable if it's just left to us. God's standard is perfection. Anybody in here perfect? Not me. None of us. The Bible makes it clear that we are all sinners. And there is nothing that we can do to earn righteousness on our own. There is nothing that we could do to earn salvation on our own. And here's the deal. God knows that. He knows that we're sinners before him. Like all of us have done things, said things, thought things that would go against God in his ways. We are sinner by nature and by choice. We've got no chance. Now, God would be perfectly loving, holy, righteous, perfect if he leaves us in our sins. There is nothing that demands or requires God to save us. 
didn't have to. It could be just like everywhere else, man. Good luck. Hope it works out for you. Better try hard. Better try hard. Better do good. But no, he doesn't do that. He comes to us to save us, to rescue us, to to bring salvation here. We don't have to earn our way to God. We don't have to get ourselves to God. No, he comes to us. Church, that's the beauty of the incarnation is that God comes to us. That is amazing. That is incredible. He meets us where we are in our brokenness, in our sinfulness. He comes just like we are, lives just like we are so that he can save us. So incarnation tells us that, that he, he comes for us, that Jesus brings salvation to us. And then he tells us that, that when he comes, he doesn't just come in any, any, any you know, other way, like he just comes whatever. No, he comes in a specific way. He comes as a servant, right? He takes on the form of a servant. He puts on the form of a servant. That's the Greek word doulos, means slave. That's what that word means. And we saw this in the first verse of Philippians. Paul says that he is a doulos of Christ Jesus. He is a servant, a slave of Jesus. And now what we're being told here in Philippians 2 is before Paul was a servant of Christ, before we were servants of Christ, Jesus was a servant for us. Jesus became a slave for us. I just think about that for a second. When, when Jesus comes, when God comes to earth and he leaves the glory and the perfection and the wonder and amazement of heaven and comes here, he comes as a servant. Jesus lived his entire life in poverty. He lived his entire life before his public ministry. He lived about 30 years in relative obscurity. How many people know? Mary knew. Joseph knew. How many people beyond that knew that the Messiah was just walking around Nazareth until his public ministry and it became known? He, he came into a carpenter's family, right? Like Jesus wasn't wealthy. He wasn't famous. He wasn't royalty. He lived in poverty. 2 Corinthians 8 9 puts it this way For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich. For your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Jesus came in poverty. Look, he could have done it differently. I mean, think about it. Like, if God was coming to earth, if you were God and you decided to come to earth, would you come this way? Would you choose that this would be the way that you lived your life? You're God. Right? He could have come into a different circumstance. He could have come to a more prominent family, a more well-known family. He could have come in, into royalty. He could have come into a wealthier family. He could have come in, in a whole bunch of different circumstances, but he, but he doesn't. He comes into a family of a little-known, obscure carpenter's family, living in relative poverty for most of his life, for pretty much all of his life. That's how Jesus comes. That's how God comes. I don't have time to dig into that, but man, that teaches us about God's character, does it not? That tells us something about God, the way he chose to come to earth. That tells us something. 
So Jesus comes to serve. He says this in, in Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Again, if anybody in this life deserves to be served, it's God in the flesh. God deserves to be served. And yet he's like, no, 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 I didn't, I didn't come here to be served. I came to serve you. And what that looks like, what that means is me giving my life for you, dying on the cross for our sins. That's how Jesus serves us. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 says, When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus comes to serve. He came to give his life for ours. He came to save us, to redeem us, to forgive us, to set us free, church. That's what Jesus has done. That's what Jesus does when he comes in the incarnation. He comes to save us. So what does all this mean for us is where we're going we're gonna to land. So we see that Jesus is fully God, fully man, right? One person, two natures. Fully God, fully man. He comes, and, and as he comes, the, the metaphor is, is that he empties himself. He lowers himself. He humbles himself to live as a servant, to give his life for ours. So what does that mean for us? Well, first, we, what it tells us is the importance of this doctrine. Right? We said that this is one of those closed-handed issues that we need to be right on. We need to get this right, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Because just like we said two weeks ago, that if Jesus wasn't fully God, he can't save us. Only God can forgive sins. Only God can pay the penalty for sins. Right? Only he can do that. God's the only one who can save. The Bible makes that clear over and over and over again. But the Bible also tells us that in order for Jesus to save us, mankind, he had to become mankind. He had to be both God and man, or else he couldn't save. Hebrews talks a lot about this, but specifically in Hebrews chapter 2, uh, the author of Hebrews speaks to this idea of why Jesus had to become a man. I'm not going to read the whole thing for you, but starting in verse 14 of Hebrews 2, it says this, now, since the children of flesh and blood, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Okay, let, let's do a little bit of theological work again here to, to make sure we're all on the same page. So why did Jesus have to become man to save us? Well, Hebrews 2 tells us that, that it, he has to relate to mankind. He has to become like mankind in order to pay the penalty for our sins, to make atonement, payment for our sins. So we already talked about how we are, we are sinners. We are all sinners before God. Well, the Bible also teaches that, that what we deserve because of our sins is death and wrath forever. That's what we deserve. The wages of sin is death. What we have stored up because of our sins is death and God's wrath. That's what we deserve to pay. So because mankind is a sinner, 
mankind has to atone for our sin. So in the Old Testament, we see these, these different animal sacrifices happening. And if you're familiar with that, you know that those were just temporary, right? They had to keep making sacrifices over and over and over and over again. Because a bull or a ram or a sheep, no matter how perfect and without blemish it was, it's not a human. It's not a human. It's not a perfect sacrifice. It's not a, not a perfect identification, right? That that ram or goat or sheep can't fully represent me, right? So because mankind is a sinner, mankind has to pay the penalty. Therefore, in order for our penalty to be made, our penalty to be paid, it has to be paid by a man. It has to be paid by a person, by a human. And that's why Hebrews tells us that Jesus had to become like the children of, of Abraham, Abraham's offspring. That, that's, that's people, humanity, God's people. To save God's people, Jesus had to be like God's people. He had to become man in order to save mankind. Theologian Stephen Willem puts it like this very simply. He says, representation requires identification. If Jesus was to be our new representative before God, as our Savior, to atone for our sins, to make payment for our sins, he had to be like us. He had to be a man as well. He had to be a human. This is how Paul puts it in First Timothy. He says, First Timothy 2, verses 5 through 6, says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. So in order for us, mankind, to get to God for salvation, in order for us to be saved, we have to get to God. How do we do that? It's through Jesus. He's the only one. He's the only way because he's the only one who is both God and man. That's what makes him the perfect mediator. Fully God, fully man. Has the power of God to forgive sins and identifies us fully to make payment for our sins. Jesus has to be both. He has to be both God and man or else salvation doesn't count. Okay, so this matters. This is a big deal. Okay, so it reminds us, truth reminds us of the importance of this doctrine. Second thing is that this teaches us what it means for us is what this whole passage is about is for us to learn from Jesus's actions, right? So Paul tells us at the beginning of chapter two is like, hey, I, Philippians, you guys need to be unified. You need to humble yourself. You need to serve other people. You need to love each other as Christ would love you. And we do that. We act that way because Jesus set forth the example and that carries forward today. Christian, believer, person, follower of Jesus, love one another, humble, humbly serve one another, look to the needs of others. Why do we do that? Because Jesus does that. So this teaches us how to follow Jesus. So Jesus emptied himself. We are to empty ourselves. We are to empty ourselves. Jesus didn't seek status or wealth or worldly riches. And he's telling us that that's not how we're to live our lives either. That's not what we're to chase after either. But how often are we giving ourselves over to status or wealth or the riches of this world? And you're like, Travis, man, I'm not trying to become famous, right? I'm not trying to get a million followers on social media or, or, or become, you know, the, on the cover of People Magazine or whatever it is right now that, that determines who famous people are, right? Like, no, I'm not, Travis, I'm not, I'm not seeking status or fame in that way. But I, obviously, I'm, I'm sure that, that none of us are. But how often do we chase after status in our lives? How often do we consume ourselves and worry ourselves with what everybody else around us thinks about us? How often do we want to present ourselves before others 
in the best possible way to make sure everybody thinks that we've got our act together, we're the best person, parent, spouse, whatever. How often are we truly actually living for status? I think, I think far more often than we would probably want to admit. I think we chase status in a lot of different ways. We chase the approval of other people, the praise of other people in a whole bunch of different ways. How often do we pursue the riches of this world? How often are we consumed with wealth and materialism and the things of this world, right? The Bible tells us over and over again, like riches are not, are not in, the, in and of themselves bad. Money in, in and of itself is not bad, but when you live for money, money makes a terrible God. Wealth makes a terrible Savior. We dedicate our lives to have some sort of you know, financial freedom or, or peace in this world, whatever word you want to put on that, man. If we just had more money, if we just had more wealth, if we just had a better retirement, if we just had, were out of debt, man, my life would just be so much better. And in some ways, yeah, it, it, it might be. But I'll tell you this, I've never met a rich person or heard a rich person like, you know what, got enough money, I'm good. I'm good. You know what, I have so much, let me just give all of it away, right? Let me just give, let me just give all of it away, and I'll just have enough to live this, this meager, relaxed lifestyle, right? Like, I don't need much, just a little tiny house and a little beat-up car. Like, I, I'll give all the, and like, nobody does that. Why? Because when you live for money, man, you're never satisfied. When we live for wealth and riches of this world, you will never be satisfied. Your hunger will only grow more and more, and it will destroy you. So Jesus tells us over and over again, man, don't live for things that will actually, dis actually destroy you. Don't live for things that will rot away. Don't live for the things of this world that could be taken away in an instant. That's not where true wealth is. That's not where true riches are. Jesus shows the way. He shows us what it looks like to live, not consumed with the riches of this world, but consumed with God and his ways. That's how we're to live. Jesus also teaches us as he comes to us in need, we are to go to others in need. That's what we're called to do as Christians. We are to go into the world, a needy world, with the hope of the gospel. Church, we are in a culture that is desperately needy for Jesus. They might not be able to articulate that need. They might not be able to say, hey, I need Jesus over here. Can you, hey, I heard you go to church. Can you tell me about Jesus? Look, if that happens, man, you better jump at that opportunity, but that is probably not going to happen. Don't expect people to come to us. We are to go to other people. Right? We're not just to kind of sit back here at the church and be like, hey, when y'all realize, when y'all wake up to the fact that you need Jesus, we're here and you can come here and then we'll talk about Jesus. That's not how it works. We are to go and make disciples. We're to go to the nations. We're to go and be witnesses for Jesus. We're to carry the hope and the light and the truth of Jesus to this dark world. Man, it's, it's easy to look at the culture and the world around us and go, you know what? We just need to huddle up in our Christian bubble. We just need to retreat because things are bad. People are crazy. And man, if they find out that I believe what I believe, man, I, I'll lose my job. I'll lose my status. People will hate me. I'll get canceled. Whatever it is. It's easy to go, you know what? Let me just, let me just retreat. Let me just, just hide out. Is that what Jesus does? No. He goes into the darkness and he calls us to follow him there. We are to go to people in need. There are people in your neighborhoods, at your workplace, in your family, in your community, in your lives that need Jesus. Let's go to them. Let's go to them just like Jesus would. And Jesus also tells us and, and shows us what it looks like to be a servant. And that's exactly what we're to be. 
And if Jesus, if God himself said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve, how much more are we to serve? So how are we serving? How are you serving in your family? How are you serving your spouse and your kids? Husbands in the room, this is you, man. You lead the way in this. This is on us to lead in our family. We don't sit back and wait for our wife and our kids to come serve us. No, we serve first. We're the first ones to lay down our desires. We're the first ones to lay down our preferences for our spouse, for our kids. We set the tone in that. We lead in serving. How are you serving in your workplace? How are you looking to help out those around you instead of just focused on what you can get and how you can be great? How are we serving in our community, those around us, in our neighborhoods? Are we looking for opportunities where people are in need, where we can step in and help meet that need with the love of Jesus? How are you serving in church? Y'all, we need you. I'll just be real with you, man. They, they tell preachers, don't be desperate for volunteers. Sorry, that, throw that rule out because we're desperate. We need volunteers, all right? We need people to help pull this off. We cannot do this without you. And to those that are serving, you're amazing. We love you. Thank you. But if this is your church and you are not serving, we need you. We need you. And again, Jesus is the example, right? If Jesus were coming to Haines Creek for worship, do you think he would be here at 8 o'clock to help set up? Or do you think he would wait till everything's done and in order and the coffee's hot and the music's going and all the chairs are out and then come in and be like, y'all, I'm here? Maybe I'm wrong on this. Maybe I'm presuming upon the Lord. I think he'd be here at 8 to help pull out some chairs. We need you. Jesus shows us what it looks like to be a servant. We are to be a servant, too. And the last thing that, that Jesus is coming, his, his incarnation demonstrates, is his great love for us. Man, y'all, Jesus loves us so much. The most famous verse of the Bible speaks this. says, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. We've already said this, but God doesn't have to come to save us. He doesn't have to save us. And yet, he loves us so much that he does just that. He leaves heaven, and he comes here. He becomes poor. He leaves the riches of heaven behind. He becomes poor so that he can save us. The gospel reminds us that, that we are, 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 are more sinful than we ever dared believe. And at the same time, we are far more loved by God than we could ever imagine. That's what Jesus tells us in his incarnation. He's showing us how much he loves us. He's showing us that, that he's right here with us, right? We don't have a distant God. We don't have a far-off God. We don't have a God that we have to try to impress, that we have to try to earn that love by, you know, doing certain things and being a good enough Christian, and therefore now we have God's love. No, he, he shows us, man. He comes right here with us. He meets us in our brokenness. He meets us in our sin. He meets us in our need. He comes to us. He draws close to us so that we can draw close to him. Hebrews 4 puts it this way. He says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, 
so we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God comes close to us so that we will draw close to him. Believer in the room, let us not chase after status and the things of this world. Let us draw close to Jesus. Let us give our lives to the one who gave his life for us. And if you're here, you've never put your faith in Jesus, let today be that day. Let today be the day that you come to Jesus. Salvation is only found in him. Jesus tells us, John 14, 6, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, no one comes to the Father except through faith in him. He came to save us. He came to pave that path to salvation. Let's, let's draw close to the God who comes close to us, right? Let's put our faith and trust in him and live for him. I'm gonna pray for us in a moment and we're gonna, we're gonna step into a time of worship and communion like we do every single Sunday, church, right? Every single Sunday that we gather, we have this moment of worship this moment of response where after hearing the truths of Jesus, the word of God, we respond in worship the only way that we should, right? When we hear the truth of the gospel, when we hear the truth of, of what Jesus has done for us, the only one that's ever done that for us, our, our only response should be to go, Jesus, you're amazing, and worship and praise him. And part of the way we do that is through communion. That's why we do it every single week. We have this moment where we get to center our hearts back on Jesus. We get to remember the gospel that Jesus gave his life for ours. And when we take the bread and we take the cup and we eat and we drink, we remember that sacrifice. We remember Jesus coming to us to save us and give his life for our sins. So believer in the room, those of you here that put your faith in Jesus, this time is for you. So as I pray, you pray too, as, as John and the band comes up and, and leads us in worship, we take a moment, take as many moments as you need to, to pray and maybe center our hearts back on Jesus, maybe just worship him in your seat. And then as you're ready, as you're prepared, we go to the tables, we eat, we drink, and remember our good God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. Jesus, we thank you that you put on humanity, that you came and put on flesh, Lord, that you are Emmanuel, God, with us, that you are our great mediator, Lord, that you, through your life and death and resurrection, Lord, you have provided the way for forgiveness of our sins, salvation, and eternal life with you, Jesus. So we thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that you've done, Lord. We thank you for your great love for us, Jesus. That you did not leave us in our sins, but you came and rescued us, Lord. So we draw our hearts back to you, center our hearts and our lives on you, Jesus. Let us live fully for you, worshiping you with every part of who we are, Lord. We love you. We praise your name today. In your name we pray.